Hey, so we are in part three of our series that we started in August 316, basically. It's, it's focused on John chapter three. Can you guess what verse? Verse 16, yeah. So go there with me quickly. John chapter three, verse 16. You may just be turning the pages of your mind to the memory of yours. You know, some of you have heard this uh, since you were just knee-high to a grasshopper. Um, But John chapter 3, verse 16, and what we've been focusing on, we've been journeying together towards newness. We've been journeying towards a revival. And how do we experience revival? Um, Two weeks ago, we stopped at that first phrase, for God so what? So loved the world that he gave. And we, we stopped long enough to pray that God would cause us to hear his heartbeat of love. The reality is that life's twists and turns, bumps and bruises, detours, and things that you don't plan on in life, it drowns out the heartbeat of God's love. And that's why we need to pray to hear God's love. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 143, verse 8, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. Why does he pray that? Because apparently it's hard to hear that. It's hard. In our natural rhythms of life, we have difficulty hearing that. And that's why he prays that. I hope we've been praying that too. Last week, we looked at not just the heartbeat of God, but we looked at the heart need of humanity. We looked at our own heart need, that we really that, uh, experience sin in a way that is more complex than we often think. But praise the Lord that God's salvation is more complete than we often think. We realize that we're not just bad people that need to be reprimanded. We are dead people that need to be resurrected. You follow that? We are not just in the business of behavior modification. Jesus is in the business of raising people to life. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what the Bible tells us. And it's that resurrected life that we're going to zero in on in part three today. The resurrected life, the eternal life that Jesus talks about here in John chapter 3, verse 16. So with that focus in mind, our study today is going to be guided by three simple questions. I'll just kind of get uh, like professorial on you for a little bit. This is our outline for our lecture today, if you will. Uh, Three questions. It's what is eternal life? What does eternal life really look like? And how do I actually live that life? And this is really basic Bible study. It's what, so what, and then now what? Have you heard those questions before? You know, what is it saying? So what's the big deal? And then now what do I do about it? All right. So what is eternal life? This is what we want to zero in on because this is how Jesus, uh, this is like the climax of John 3.16, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In fact, we're going to focus that on that this week and also next week. So experiencing the eternal life, the life in Christ. Let's pray together. God, we've got three basic questions, but one desire, and we want you to live out this eternal life in us. Some of us have heard eternal life, everlasting life. We, we know that this is what you grant us, but on some level, we haven't taken it from the head to the heart. And so please, God, teach us today, not just to inform us, but to transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Let the family say, amen, amen. All right, so here we are. Uh, We're going to 
ask this basic question, what is eternal life? So go with me, John chapter 3, verse 16. We're gonna, let's read it all together. I'm actually reading from the New King James, so if you have a different version, that's okay. Just read quietly. <laughs> just kidding. Anyways, here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As we consider the question of what is eternal life or what is everlasting life, quickly, what, what's the first, if you were to have a, a Webster's Dictionary, a Godfrey's Dictionary, a, 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 a Selly's Dictionary, what would eternal life have as its definition? What, what, what comes to your mind when you think of eternal life? Forever? Living forever? Yeah? Okay. What else? What else? No beginning, no end. Yeah, boundless, right? I love that. Any mental images? Clouds, harps, things like that? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, not quite. Bungee jumping off the highest peaks, maybe? No. What, what, do you, what comes to your mind? When we've praised him for 10,000 years. Wow. Awesome. Did you hear that? When we've praised him for 10,000 years, we've only just begun. Like there's a, an infinite experience that we haven't even scratch the surface up. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Eternal life. And these things come to our mind, the, the duration of life, the forever of life. But um, maybe the better question is not just what comes to our mind, but what comes to John's mind when he's writing about eternal life. I don't know if you realize this, but 17 times in the gospel of John alone. So this doesn't include 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, doesn't include Revelation. In the gospel of John alone, 17 times he uses this phrase, eternal life. In John 3.16, we see it in, in our English translation as everlasting life. It's the same as eternal life. Uh, it's it's uh, just kind of synonymous there. Same Greek phrase, 17 times. And so what's interesting to me is that when you just kind of zero your eyes on a familiar passage, uh, for me, in order for me to get past the familiarity of, it, of things and really start chewing on it, I kind of, um, well, I do several different tricks. I read words differently, like I accent the word uh, so if you were to look at John 3, 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Anyways, those kinds of things just kind of make different ideas pop out. But one of the things I start doing is I ask why it's said that way instead of another way. So look at the, what, what is promised to whoever believes in him. All right, That whoever believes in him should not what? perish. Okay, that's an action word. It's a verb. It's a verbal idea. But have everlasting, what is it? Life, which is a noun, an object that we possess. It's really interesting to me. I find it interesting that John doesn't say that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but live eternally. Do you notice that? He's not contrasting the experience of death with the experience of eternal life duration of existence. Is that like head scratching or is, does that make sense? In other words, it's not stated as a verb. It's not stated as what we will do eternally. It's not even stated in the future tense of things. This, is, this will not be your destiny. This will be your destiny. No, it's actually talking about a present tense possession of an experience. Really interesting. 
while the unending existence in heaven, the e- forever life the, the, in the ages on and on, it may be part of the picture of what John is talking about here when he says everlasting life or eternal life. But I would submit this, that linguistically, John is talking about something that the believer will presently, continuously have. Do you follow? So the question is, what is it that the believer has now, not just will have eventually? Yeah? Okay. So, so 17 times eternal life appears in the gospel of John, not counting the epistles. And we know, like we, we've heard some of these things, if you just kind of flip through, like John chapter 5, verse 24. 5, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has what? Everlasting life. Again, so we know that everlasting life comes through belief. It comes through the word of God. Uh, Just like in John 3, 16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But what's really interesting is the very last, the very last, the 17th reference of eternal life in John chapter 17, verse 3. John chapter 17, verse 3. Am I the only one that's getting warm in here? No? Okay. What if we, I don't know if, Bill, could you help me just prop that door wide open, the, the exit door there? And then, um, yeah, I don't know if there are windows. Anyways, I'll just stop moving around. How's that? <laughs> okay. John 17, verse 3. Is everybody there? If you're there, say amen. amen. Okay. This is the last of John's references in his gospel. And this is eternal life. Oh, praise the Lord. He's going to give us a dictionary definition. All right. And this is eternal life that they may what? Know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, eternal life is not living endlessly. Eternal life is a relationship of knowing God. It's a relationship of knowing God. It's not just the future hope of living in heaven. It's the present reality of a real friendship with Jesus. This is really deep. I don't know if you realize this, but there are a couple of different words for knowledge and knowing in in the New Testament Greek. But this word know, it, it actually implies a level of personal experience and intimacy. Uh, Maybe you remember the story when Angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, hey, you're going to have a son and he's going to be the Messiah. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, Mary asks this logistical question. How can this be since I do not know a man? She's not saying that she doesn't have book knowledge about the, the male uh, race. Okay. <laughs> no, she's saying, I, I don't have this intimate relationship, a committed, faithful closeness with that kind of a person. How can that be? And so when we import that into this, hey, eternal life is not just book knowledge about God. Do you believe that he exists or don't believe that he exists? It's a personal acquaintance and a personal familiarity, an intimate familiarity with God Almighty. Wow. That's what eternal life is. And according to John chapter 3, verse 16, it's whoever believes in God will have that kind of knowledge of God. In other words, I don't know if you realize this, knowing and trusting, knowing and trusting. To know God 
is to trust God, right? I mean, there is that old classic song, to know, know, know him, is to love, love, love him, and I do shoo be doo right? Okay. <laughs> Anyways, but to know God is to love him. To love God is to trust him. We don't trust people that we don't know. But when we believe, when we accept this, there's this hand-in-hand relationship of knowing and trusting God. So truly, if we were to ask the question, what is eternal life? It's knowing and trusting Jesus day by day. It's, that's it. And it happens today. It's a relationship that truly has no end. You ask yourself, what's so eternal about that kind of knowledge? Well, really, there's no end to knowing God. <laughs> there's no end to experiencing how deeply you can trust Him. It's a, it, there's, it's a relationship in which we're constantly knowing more of God, and I would submit, constantly being known by Him. It's what John 10, verse 10, would call the abundant life boundless, without boundaries, has no end, has no beginning. And that's why, you know, here's another one from John. This is in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God has given, excuse me, that God has given us eternal life. And this life, this eternal life is where? It's in his son, in a relationship with the son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. That's why John can say it so conclusively. Hey, eternal life, it's, it, let me tell you like this, it's in Jesus. <laughs> and we don't have to wait to have Jesus. We can have Jesus now. It's in the Son. And that's why when we're asking the question, what is eternal life? We can simply say it's living in a trusting relationship with Jesus. Do we follow today? Is that, does that make sense? So it, this is the what. We'll get to the so what and then the now what. But what is eternal life? It's living in trusting relationship with Jesus. It's not only the quantity of years, but the quality of experience. This is something you and I can have now. So question, are you experiencing eternal life yet? <laughs> are you living in a trusting relationship with Jesus? That's the question. All right. This, if this is eternal life, now the next question we want to ask is, what is that all about? So what? What's the big deal? What does eternal life really look like? Or maybe even as we're answering, answering this question, we can ask, what does eternal life not look like? Um, sometimes we, we know what something is by what it is not. And so we're going to go to a book or just after John. John acts then Romans. All right. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, I really feel like Paul does a good job of uh, not just describing the gospel, but like fully, exhaustively delineating it for us, okay? So Romans chapter 8, verse 1, remember this eternal life is in the Son. So, you know, John calls it eternal life or everlasting life. It's life in the Son. Paul, in, in his writings, he will call it life in Christ, you know? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Maybe you've heard that, word, that phrase before, in Christ. Well, how do I step in Christ? No, it's, it's talking about a relationship in Jesus. All right, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, now this is going to start getting a little bit like wheat bread. You got to chew on this for a while, okay? So, so let's get to it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Notice how he describes the life in Christ, okay? There is therefore... Now, no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Okay, so he's talking about this experience of being in a relationship, a trusting relationship with Jesus. 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to what else? The spirit. Here's Paul's connection. I want us to catch this. The life in Christ that John calls eternal life, right? The life in Christ, Paul also calls it not walking according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So if we want to understand what Paul thinks about eternal life, he's saying, well, eternal life is life in Christ, and life in Christ is life in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Do we follow? Yeah? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read, I think, what, 2, verse 2, all the way to maybe verse 10 or 11. And we're just going to look. He's going to kind of put up two different columns. This is life in the flesh. This is life in the Spirit. Okay, so if we want to understand what, what eternal life is like, we know it's not life in the flesh. We know it's life in the spirit. So let's see what Paul says about this. Can we follow? Yeah, here we go. Verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made, has made me free from the law of sin and death. Okay, so here's one contrast. Uh, life in the flesh is the law of sin and death. Life in the spirit is a life of freedom. It's a life free in the spirit. You follow? Yeah. Verse uh, three continues, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, praise the Lord, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now notice verse four, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, so again, two columns, life in the flesh, is righteousness or the law unfulfilled. Life in the spirit would be uh, the law or righteousness fulfilled. Yeah, easy enough so far. If you're taking notes, you can kind of make the two columns on your paper. If you, if you visualize things in your heart and mind, you can do that too. All right, verse five. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on what? On the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the Spirit. This seems pretty easy to follow. Paul's making it very clear. Okay, so apparently uh, this eternal life, it affects the way we think, right? And it expresses itself in the kinds of things we fixate our attention upon. Life in the flesh, when we're apart from Jesus, a trusting relationship with Jesus, we're fixed on things of this world, the natural, right? The temporal. But when we have this trusting relationship with Jesus, our mind is, is moving in different directions. We're, we're fixed on things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Okay, so death goes in one column. Oh, man, that's life in the flesh. Not so hot, right? <laughs> life and peace. Okay, that, that looks a little bit brighter. That's life in the spirit. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 7, because the carnal mind, that's the, the mind that's apart from a trusting relationship with Jesus, is enmity. That's a feeling between enemies. That's hostility against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Okay, so in this column, life in the flesh, man, my mind doesn't even jive with God's values. It can't even resonate. It has no capacity to. And although verse 7 doesn't say the opposite, we can see that life in the flesh by implication would be, my mind actually can submit to God. When I'm walking in a relationship with Jesus, I actually can trust him. That, do we follow that? Yeah? All right. Let's see. Verse 8. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay. In that right column there, uh, life in the flesh, we can't please God. Life in the spirit, by implication, 
we can live a life that's pleasing to God. Which, I mean, you connect the dots throughout Scripture. This totally makes sense. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we're told that um, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So no wonder when I'm in a trusting relationship with Jesus, I can actually please God. Okay, we're, this is, okay, here we go. <laughs> Just want to make sure that we're following, because um, this can, yeah, okay. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Okay, this is more descriptive now. When we're not in Christ, we don't belong to him. Yeah, we're not, we're not in a, like, we're not identified by him. Exactly, we, we don't belong to his family. So life in the flesh, we, we are not his. Life in the spirit, we are his, okay? And in verse 10 and 11, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's the resurrected life that we were talking about last week. Not just behavior modification, but raised to new life in Jesus, all right? So the body is dead in the life of the flesh, but the body is made alive by resur- re- resurrection power. I would say that the, the heart is made alive by resurrection power. Bottom line, f- life in the flesh is death. Life in the, fle- in the spirit is real life, yeah? That's eternal life. Okay, so maybe you're thinking, all right, I kind of knew that. (laughs) Life in the flesh is what I don't want. Life in the spirit is what I do want. Life in the flesh is negative. Life in the spirit is generally positive. It's freedom. It's peace. It's it's all these kinds of things. In broad strokes, this probably does not come as a surprise to you. The life in Christ is the life that everybody looks to as that awesome ideal. That's what I want. And the life in the flesh is its very opposite. It's the life that's rebellious. It's the life that's wicked. It's the life where unrighteousness is the dominant characteristic. It's, the, it's that lost picture of life. Okay, we, we, we kind of had that sense, but I think it's important for us just to just kind of read through that. But here's the problem. There's one more text that describes life in the flesh to me in a way that is problematic. All right, so go with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We might think that this is pretty obvious. You know, there's actually another text. Just uh, I'll let you write this down in your notes. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 23. That one makes it pretty crystal clear. The works of the flesh are evident, it says, and this, and makes a huge list. But then it says the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, that's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, you know. Maybe you know a song about that. (laughs) Anyways, But Galatians chapter 5 really delineates that pretty clearly too. But here's Philippians chapter 3. And I I don't know, maybe maybe problematic is is too heavy of a word. But it does throw a monkey wrench into our black and white contrast between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. Let's let's read it. Philippians chapter 3. If you're there, say amen. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. I'm sorry, I'll start in verse 3. This is Paul. He's talking about his personal journey of walking with God. And he says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the what? 
in the flesh. In other words, he's saying, hey, I'm a believer. I live life in the spirit. Sorry, I didn't actually put this up. So what does eternal life look like? It's living in the spirit and not in the flesh. Okay, pretty crystal clear. So now let's figure out what does it really mean? Uh, We know one's positive, one's negative, but here's Paul. And he says, hey, we're the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. We're living life in the flesh. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, in trusting relationship with him. We have no confidence in that other life. No confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. Okay, so now he's describing his previous experience of living in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law. What's his next word? Does he say wicked? No. When he was in the flesh, he was blameless. Hold the phone. I thought life in the flesh was that unholy, uh, totally like rebellious way of life that we want to totally avoid. But according to Paul, when he was living in the flesh, he was perfect. He was a perfect persecutor. We talked about this in our Philippians series a few months ago. Apparently, living in the flesh does not always look like living in the flesh. That's why it's problematic. Maybe you're saying, I am glad I'm not living in the flesh. You know, you look at Romans 8, you look at Galatians 5, I am glad I am not living out those works of the flesh that are so obvious. Actually, you look at Galatians 5 and you think to yourself, wait a minute. (laughs) Okay, I'm not an idolater. I'm not a sorcerer. I'm not a dissenter or causing arguments or... Wait a minute. Okay. You, you look at these things honestly, right? But here, Philippians chapter 3 actually kind of makes things totally messed up. In Philippians 3, Paul confesses that it is very possible to do even righteous things and still be living in the flesh. All the righteous things Paul was doing were still expressions of the flesh. Let this sink in. We talked about this a little bit last week. Why were the things that Paul was doing in his previous life, living the righteousness of the law, why was that still living in the flesh? Why? Because it was apart from a trust in Jesus. (laughs) We can do all the right things, but when it's apart from the faith in Jesus, it's still sin. Romans 14, verse 23. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin and it's deserving of death. Wow. So what then is living in the flesh? It's living apart from faith in Jesus. And living apart from faith in Jesus can manifest itself, yes, in blatantly wicked and rebellious ways, but apparently it can also manifest itself in seemingly righteous ways. Mmm, mercy, right? Why is it that Mahatma Gandhi once said, I would be a Christian if it weren't for Christians? Because apparently church folk can live in such a way that we destroy people's picture of God. Wow. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 5. So you're in Philippians. Turn a few more pages. You'll, you'll get to New Testament books that start with the letter T. <laughs> Second Timothy is the last of those T books, all right? I'm sorry, it's, the, it's not quite the last. I guess Titus is the last. Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This is a, a verse that I was reading earlier this week. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. When you're there, say amen. All right. Paul is talking about perilous times. He's talking about preparing to stand in the last days. Paul is giving this to us. But know this, verse 1, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I am glad that those kinds of people are just out there and not right here, not in my home. But what does this say in verse 5? having a form of godliness, but denying what? It's power. Having the appearance of righteousness, but apart from a trust in Jesus that really is the power. That's life in the spirit. In the spirit. He's describing people who are living life in the flesh, and that list includes those who profess faith and godliness. It, it's us. <laughs> It's us. The real problem for professed Christians is trying to do the works of the Spirit in the power of the flesh. That's that's what Paul would call a fight. 1 Timothy chapter 6, let us fight the good fight of faith. He doesn't say the fight of against sin or a a fight of struggling to to be more righteous. He says the fight of faith. Why? Because the fight of faith is the struggle to trust, not in yourself, but in Jesus. Not in yourself, but in Jesus. That's the real struggle. It's trying to do the works of the Spirit in the power of the flesh, trying to do heavenly things, but we run it by human power. And so when we ask this question, what does eternal life really look like? Uh, we, We can't be just... I mean, this is a good answer, but it has to be nuanced. Living in the spirit and not in the flesh. Um, It has to be nuanced. Why? Because the life in the flesh can have the appearance of life in the spirit. (laughs) It can can resemble the life of the spirit, but still be driven by the power of the flesh. So the real answer to question number two has to be nuanced. The life in Christ has, has to be more than the form or appearance of godliness, right? The life in Christ has to be more than just the externals of righteousness, denying the power of the Spirit. So the believer, remember John 3, 16, whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. I mean, it's right there, tucked away, righteousness by faith in John 3, 16. Whoever believes in him will live the life in the Spirit. When we trust in Jesus, the real believer expresses the righteousness of Christ and it springs from the power of Christ. Yes, Zechariah 4, 6. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's doing heavenly things by heavenly power, not by human effort. Whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. 
It's not just that I do this and I don't do that, but it's how I do it, by whom I do it, through whose power I live that life. And those are the questions. That's why, you know, in John chapter, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. When we've been remade, when we've been resurrected, how does this overcoming happen? This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That's good news to me. That's good news to me. Because the struggle against sin is very real. Amen? The struggle against sin's curses are very real. You know, the curses that we've been experiencing ever since the Garden of Eden. Running from God, blaming each other, uh, dysfunction in our relationships, uh, the difficulty with our work, finding pain in the things that are supposed to bring us pleasure. All of sin's curses, all of, this, all of sin's consequences are heavy on our hearts. And praise the Lord that victory comes not by my scratching and fighting, but by my trusting in Jesus. That's victory. That's victory. I tell you, that's the life of peace. That's life in the spirit. I guess we're not having potluck outside today. <laughs> I don't know. We'll figure that out when it comes. Anyways. 1 John 5, verse 4, this life in Christ. I love this. This is the victory that has overcome the world. You're trying to experience victories in something. Maybe there's an area in your life that you are really, really struggling. You feel defeated. You feel down and out. You feel like you can't get back up again. And you're wondering, how am I going to get back up again? And if I get back up again, I'll just get knocked back down again. Well, maybe the struggle is actually just about faith. I, I shouldn't say just about faith. Maybe redirecting your struggle to trust that Jesus can handle this. Victory, according to this verse, is not by moral force. It's by faith. Even our faith. In other words, victory is marked, we said it earlier, not by more struggle, but by more surrender. That's the key. So how do you apply that victory? I mean, maybe it's a destructive habit that you're experiencing. Maybe it's a temptation that's reoccurring. Maybe it's um, just a struggle to believe that, that God is going to provide. Maybe it's, it's an interpersonal dynamic, a relationship. How are you going to not struggle through that? but actually trust more through that, surrender more through that. What if we've been asking all the wrong questions? What should I do when, when this happens? No, it, how should I believe when this happens? Wow, what if that's the higher question that we've been missing all along? Oh man, here's this, I want to, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to. Or this dynamic happened and oh, what am I supposed to do here? Well, maybe it's not so much about what I do and don't do, but have I shifted my heart to trust in Jesus? Okay, so what is eternal life? It's living in a day-by-day, -day, trusting relationship with Jesus. What does that look like? It looks like not life in the flesh, but life in the spirit. But apparently life in the flesh can sometimes look like life in the spirit. And so really, what does it look like? It looks like relying on heavenly power to accomplish heavenly goals. And so... The third question is now what? What do I do about that? How can I live this life of Christ? How do I make that radical transition? I mean, really, that's a totally different way of approaching life. I don't know if that's, that's kind of hitting your heart. Wait, that's not how I respond to challenges and difficulties. I want to solve. I want to resolve. I want to fix. I want to fight back. No, what if it's more the fight of faith? 
So how do I actually transition from the life in the flesh to life in the spirit? How do I make that move from one life to the other, operating in the flesh and to to living in the spirit? Is there a switch that we can flip? (laughs) Is there a booth that I can go to, a kiosk at the mall that I can just like, okay, uh, let's change things? How do I rid myself of constantly trusting in myself? Is it possible? (laughs) Apparently, right? I mean, John 3.16 promises it. Here it is, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. It's a key verse for me. And I'll just kind of put this here on the screen. How do I do it? It's by letting my life in the flesh be crucified. Ooh. It's kind of dark. <laughs> okay, let, let's see what the Bible says. We're, we're in 2 Timothy. Go to the left. You're going to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Oh, we have it here on the screen too. All right, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. The Bible says something about those who belong to Jesus. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. <laughs> you know, that's easier said than done. I don't know if you, you've, I, I haven't found any case of a self-inflicted crucifixion. <laughs> Think about this. Crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, we know that the life in flesh, the life that's not trusting in Jesus, the life that sometimes looks like life in the spirit but really isn't, that life is what we don't want. So how do we transition from that to this? How do we go from untrusting to trusting? How do we go from reliance upon self to reliance upon the Savior? According to this verse, it happens as that old life is crucified. But crucifixion doesn't happen on our own. Think about it. it it's impossible to crucify yourself. So what's my part? Someone else has to, obviously, Paul has experienced this where where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. This is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, yet Christ lives in me. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Apparently, Paul has experienced this. He's been crucified with Christ, and I would say he's been crucified by Christ. So what's my part then? What's my part? How do I actually let Jesus do this? The Bible gives us an answer about how to become crucified with Christ. The Bible gives us an answer of how to bury the old life, the old life of flesh, the old life of trusting in self so that we can live the life in the Spirit. It might seem simple, but it's actually very, very significant. It's in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Let's go there together. How do I bury the old? How do I transition from a life of trusting in self Is there something I can do? Apparently, I can't crucify myself, so what can I do? According to Romans chapter 6, verse 4, when you're there, say, I'm there. The Bible says, therefore, we were buried. Okay, this is death language. We were buried with him through what? Yes, through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in what kind of life? He's talking about the resurrected life. He's talking about 
eternal life. He's talking about life in Christ, life in the Spirit, and it happens through baptism. Through baptism. What, what is it about baptism? Uh, baptism is, is such a complete act, you know, immersion, and you don't just stay there. Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> okay, baptism symbolizes a burial, a putting to death of the old life in the flesh, but not only that, a resurrection to new life in the Spirit. Oh, baptism isn't just about purging the past. It's about walking in newness of life in the present. That's what baptism is. It's not just the burial of the life in the flesh, but the resurrection of life to the Spirit. That's why in John 3, where we find our, our theme text, John three sixteen, just before that, he's talking to Nicodemus about anyone who is born of water and the Spirit they'll see the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> That's why baptism is such a big deal. Not just the water part, not just that the waters of baptism are so magical, but what baptism signifies. What baptism signifies. What, what does it signify? It's a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, it's the experience of surrender. You follow that? Baptism is, is only as powerful as surrender is personal. Your baptism, my baptism, is only as powerful as our surrender is personal. This isn't to say that the waters in the baptistry are magical or mystical, but what it signifies is the vital experience, and what it signifies is complete surrender to Jesus. That is the transition from life in the flesh to life in the Spirit. That surrender allows Jesus to crucify the old life so that we can walk in newness of life. So the question begs to be asked, have you been baptized? And when I say that, I'm not just talking about have you gotten into water and come back out? What I'm really asking is have you let God crucify and bury your living in the flesh so that you can be resurrected to life in the Spirit. I had a conversation earlier this week. Someone was asking me about rebaptism. Re Is there a role for rebaptism? And, and I just kind of rehearsed back that, you know, there have been times where people have walked in the waters of baptism, come back out the very same. And it's not to say that the waters of baptism itself should do a trick in your life. No. But the surrender to Jesus, the crucifixion of the old so you can walk in the newness of life, that hadn't really taken place in the heart. And so for, those indivi for certain individuals that I've worked with in the past, rebaptism was a very appropriate thing to do. Not because their previous baptism was invalidated, but because their surrender was more complete. Does that make sense? Yeah? And I once had a professor at the seminary who was just kind of explaining this the, what baptism is really all about. And he said, maybe we ought to make more appeals for rebaptism, <laughs> Because oftentimes our experience of baptism initially is really only about a, a clear conscience from the past, but not living in the present by the power of the Spirit. Not surrendering the life of the flesh so that we could walk in the Spirit, to stay in step with the Spirit. And so the question again, have you been baptized? Have you let the life in the flesh be crucified? Have you experienced a resurrection to walk in the Spirit? 
And if you haven't, why not be baptized? Why not make that decision? Just a few moments, I'm going to have Debbie share a song with us that she composed that I think really, like, kind of captures this idea of being free, free from that life of the flesh, to live life in the Spirit. But maybe you're asking yourself, maybe I have already been baptized, and I have experienced that genuine, uh, you know, walking past the threshold of life in the flesh to life in the Spirit. Well, then what what is there for me? Still in Romans chapter 6, there's something else here. Verse 13. There's a present tense, ongoing dynamic here, and I don't want us to miss this. Romans chapter 6, verse 13. If your eyes are there, say, I'm there. All right. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Okay, maybe the the words are too kind of jumbled up and too long for you to to really grasp. But here's what Paul is talking about. There is a duty for each believer, for those who are already walking in the Spirit, to keep walking in the Spirit. Okay, present tense continuous. That's why he's saying present yourselves. This is ongoing action right here. Present your members as instruments, not of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. It's stated in the continuous. In other words, keep bringing yourself to God and present yourself as crucified and resurrected. Okay, you may have been baptized decades ago, years ago, months ago, but day by day, this day, we have an opportunity and an invitation and an appeal straight from Paul to keep renewing that baptismal commitment and saying, hey, I'm crucified, but now I'm resurrected. Present yourself to God that way. So maybe you've experienced baptism. Have you presented yourself to God as resurrected from the dead today? If you've experienced baptism, if, if that has been real for you, there is still a work each and every day to present yourself alive from the dead. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he says, I die daily. <laughs> why, why does he say that it's a daily experience? Because he knows he needs heart surgery every day. You know, there, there are times where I just kind of like my first thought in the morning, I imagine that I'm on an operating room table, which can be very anxiety producing. But you think of it, I have a heart that needs to be replaced. Before I get up in the morning, before I drink my two glasses of water or whatever it is, I ask the heavenly heart surgeon, Jesus, give me a transplant. I haven't even said anything. I haven't even done anything, but I know who I am. Give me a new heart. Present yourself alive to God every day. Resurrected every day. Crucified every day. That's what it is. That's why Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow after me. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. So there's a baptism. A complete and entire surrender to God that we need to experience each and every day. A conscious and continuous choice to let the life in the flesh be crucified so that the life in the spirit can be my present tense experience. You want that? I want that. Okay, I'm going to let Debbie sing because she'll sing this better than I can explain this. So Debbie, um, yeah, if you could share that with us. And then we'll pray together. Maybe today, as she's, you know, singing, maybe you have one of the Next Steps cards in front of you and and you want to indicate a decision for baptism. You want to indicate maybe a decision for for rebaptism. I want to give you an opportunity to let the Holy Spirit speak to you as to what it is that he's calling for.